Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's Sarah Stremming, the Cog Dog Coach, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I cover behavior concepts, discuss training ideas, interview experts, and explore my cases, all regarding the dogs we live and play with. Let's go. In the field of dog training, there are myriad opinions about dog-to-dog play. So dogs having social interactions with other dogs. There's a camp of folks who believe that we need to be having puppies playing with other puppies every single week or we will ruin them and they will not be social animals and they will bite very hard and they will be terrible. And then there's an entirely other camp of people who believe that dog-to-dog socialization should be dogs learning how to pay attention to their handler around other dogs and that's that. As you might have guessed, I fall somewhere in between. I am not a huge fan of unstructured play between young dogs and puppies. I am a huge fan of structured play, meaning they've got other stuff to do. They're not in a barren room. They're outside. There's stuff to sniff. They can play a little and then they can move on and keep hiking, etc. And everybody's trained to at least a level that they can redirect to some food when asked, but I'm not in the camp of only having dogs do that when they're puppies either. I like them to do this when they're puppies, young dogs, adolescents, and when they're adults. I like to have them interact with other dogs. When my dogs tell me loud and clear that they don't want to interact with strangers, I never make them. And I don't think that novel dog-to-dog interactions are vital for a well-rounded dog. But I do think that if you've got the type of dog that appreciates having friends and appreciates social play, that you shouldn't deny them that. I just think you should have structure around it so that they don't look at every single other dog they see as a free-for-all or a play toy. When I encourage folks to do what I call remedial socialization, which is adolescent or adult dogs interacting with other dogs and learning through that social play, I get pushback that folks don't know enough appropriate dogs with which to do this. I think that the range of what appropriate is, is wider than what people would think. So my dog Felix, for instance, has a pretty limited idea of what a good friend might be when it comes to other dogs. And anybody who's outside of that idea, he's going to require a little bit of management around if that dog is untrained. And I don't expect him to be around dogs like that who are uncontrollable by me or by the other person that is there. He's still an appropriate dog to be around other people's dogs and puppies. I might use a muzzle. I might use a long line on the puppy. So I might implement management, but it doesn't mean that he's not an appropriate candidate. Rhea is extremely socially savvy. That's my Icelandic sheepdog. She is very smart about interactions with other dogs, but she's little. And so other dogs that have coarse social skills might overpower her too easily. And something that I think dogs learn when they are in unstructured playgroups is to like overpowering other dogs. And so if that's the dog's kind of problem that you're trying to work through, is then not a good candidate, even though she's the most socially appropriate, most socially savvy dog that I've ever had. 
If your dog wants to do things like disengage from work to go interact with other dogs at agility trials, I think that should be worked through. And I don't think that it's worked through by never letting them play with other dogs ever. I think it's better, in fact, to have them interact with other dogs in structured ways where you show them this is the time and the place for that. And you get to do it through me. You get to buy yourself access to that by listening to me. And then by not allowing it in any kind of working context. And in fact, putting up you know, strict management protocols so that it's also not allowed in those contexts. So if the dog does disengage from work, I want to make sure he doesn't get a social interaction out of it. But simply denying our dogs interaction with their own species, I think is an abuse of power, especially for the dogs who so clearly want and will benefit from those interactions. Dogs learn a ton from interacting with each other. They learn emotional self-regulation. They learn how to kind of do the play thing, disengage, do something else, then go back to the play thing. And if the play is structured well, they can even learn to better listen to their person around other dogs. All of this to say, don't be afraid of involving some dog-dog interactions in your training and in your bringing up of your young dog. The world happens to have dogs in it. And so a dog that is socially educated will better roll with those punches than a dog who is not. And while I think this conversation really does require a lot of nuance, I think blanket statements like, no, my dogs never get to play with other dogs, or dogs do not need dog friends, are not helpful. And a few Patreon questions for you. First one comes from Zoe. Zoe writes, I have a question inspired by your people patience. In nose work, Box smashing can get you faults and even ejected from a trial. I have a student whose giant schnauzer crushes boxes and also kicks ones that he can't crush. He has a massive reinforcement history of this and his handler struggles with timing and moving quickly. Based on your episodes, I'd like to remove him from the search area if he touches a container, like you talked about removing a dog and going for a lap or going home if they break a start line stay. She's worried about that impacting his drive and confusing him, not necessarily asking for a full solution to the issue, but do you think that my student is right? Or do you think the solution is worth a shot and we can see how it impacts the dog's performance after we try it a few times? So I'm not an expert and there are experts on this. So I would encourage you to consult with um, some other nose work professionals for sure. Ending the session would be part of my plan for this dog, but it would not be where I would begin. So I would have a lot of other stuff going on that would come in first. So for instance, if the dog is only doing containers, I would have containers that he can't smash so that he doesn't get the uh, reinforcement of actually smashing down boxes. I would use metal boxes. I know some people use different like switch boxes and things like <laughs> things like that for nose work. That was Rhea just weighing in. So I would use metal or, you know, other kinds of boxes that if he does paw it, it's not going to be kind of satisfying to him. Among other things, like I would have a full-blown plan and part of that plan would be that he doesn't get to keep searching if he touches something with a paw. Next one comes from Monica. 
My five Norwegian Buhuns really love their grandma. She appears by magic to dispense attention and treats and then disappears again. She lives upstairs and visits downstairs for short errands. Recently, this has escalated into the Buhans joyfully screaming and leaping over barriers in a scene reminiscent of the Viking horde for those old credit card ads. Currently, I'm having Grandma ignore the dogs entirely when she comes downstairs and hit the remote for a manners minder so it dispenses treats to the worst offender, which is my cue to do food scatters for everyone else. This certainly helps manage their behavior now, but the overall energy is still wild. And I end up feeding more than two meals worth of food to each dog every time grandma comes downstairs. I'm debating trying to take a stronger desensitization route working with each dog individually, but I'm not sure what to do with the food component because especially for my adolescent, food feels are also big and loud. When I do desensitization setups with grandma's help, do you think I should eliminate food from the process or just find a way to use it differently? Monica, number one, I can hear this and I can see it because I have Rhea and I commiserate. Number two, I would go straight desense. I would not use food at all. So what I would do is have your mom come downstairs and do something that doesn't mean anything for dogs. And I would have her do a thing that dogs recognize as not being about them. So for instance, she should come down and pick up a book and you know thumb through it and put it down and go back upstairs come down and straighten the cushions on the couch or something and go back upstairs. You know, you're getting the, the point. Come down and just straighten up everything that's on a shelf and go back upstairs. So these are things that dogs recognize as not being about dogs. And so they are helpful here because they are less confusing than things that could be about dogs. And there should not be any food, literally zero food. Part of the reason you're in this mess is because she comes down and dispenses attention and treats. You are not having them feel less about it by dispensing food. So because she lives there and you can, I would, that's what I would be doing. It will be tedious and painstaking for a while. And so I would also have a management situation in place where all the dogs go into a different area or something like that when you can't be dealing with it. There will be barking and viking screams at first and she's just not going to do anything she's just going to do the thing that she came downstairs to do and go back upstairs let me know how it's going all right next one comes from tammy tammy writes how does one get the confidence to go from book seminar webinar six month course etc to actual real training so tammy how does one get the confidence i think is probably going to be related to my answer of just how does one do this? And the answer is you, you got to go do it. So when you read a book, you have to also be yourself that you will then go put the book to work. And I actually wouldn't allow myself to buy more continuing education things unless I had a plan for making sure that I was going to implement those things. And you don't have to implement everything you've learned, but you should be trying to involve the things that you've learned with your current dogs. And so for that reason also, I probably wouldn't buy something that isn't directly related to something that I would already like to work on or am already working on. I hope that's helpful. All right, next one comes from Lynn. Lynn writes, just listen to the puppy meltdown episode. Perfect timing. My five-month-old puppy is generally curious and social, but has some noise sensitivities. 
The last month, she has started to growl or bark at sounds during the night after we've gone to bed. She usually sleeps in an X-Pen right beside our bed, but having her in our bed does not help. The last days, it's been snowing, and when they plow our road during the night, she really has a meltdown with strong alarm barking and her hackles raised and doesn't settle for a long time. Now I sleep on the floor with her in the back room during snowy nights, but is there anything we can do? We already have the window shut and have started using an adaptable diffuser. So Lynn, number one, if this is every night or super frequently, I would actually chat with your vet about some pharmaceutical support because sleep is really important for you and it's really important for the dog, especially with this growing brain. We want to stop this if we can. I would also think about using a white noise machine and I would think about using a crate instead of an X-Pen so you can cover it with a blanket that will also cut down some of the noise. So the white noise machine, cutting down the noise with a blanket. And then if it starts, like just roll over, put your hand through the crate and go, hey, you all right? And like wait for the puppy to calm down. I think that these are normal sounds that the puppy will have to adjust to. And so it's important that you don't just sleep in the other room unless it literally is constant all night. If it's literally constant all night, then you don't want the puppy to be experiencing it. So those are the tips that I have for you in this format and hopefully some of them help. Next one comes from Kelly. Kelly writes, I listened to your puppy meltdowns episode this past weekend and the timing couldn't have been more perfect. My not quite a puppy anymore border collie is 18 months old and recently had a meltdown over a toddler kicking a chain link fence while we were at the park. Kid was about 30 feet away when my boy flipped out barking but keeping distance between himself and the child and I responded promptly by recalling him, putting on the leash and putting more distance between us and the trigger. I'm pretty sure this fear stems from an incident at an agility trial when my pup was about seven months old and a spectator let her young kids run amok in the crating area. I later learned that the kids repeatedly crashed into my pup's crate while I was busy volunteering in the ring. I spent months working on his newfound fear of little kids and we were making great progress until this recent meltdown. Since my pup's brain is comparatively less malleable as he's close to full maturity. I'm wondering if I should approach the issue the same way you would for a younger pup, or if I should approach it differently like you would for an adult. Thank you. Kelly, first of all, I'm really sorry that happened to you at an agility trial. And this is just a PSA, that agility trials are not safe places to leave puppies. And that's not me telling you, Kelly, that you did something wrong. The spectators and everybody around who was watching this happen is who did this wrong. But I never leave a puppy crated in an agility trial if I am not close by and watching. They are definitely in the car because I have heard way too many stories like this. So I'm sorry that that happened to you. It shouldn't have happened to you. But here's the good news. An 18-month-old is not close to maturity. An 18-month-old is solidly an adolescent and will not be mature for at least another year. So that's good news, but it's not the same thing as a seven month old, right? I would approach it the same way that I talked about in the episode. If your young dog can respond the way that my puppy was responding, the way that I was talking about in the episode. So the episode is very nuanced intentionally. If your dog is doing well with that approach, then it is a smart approach. I wouldn't necessarily do anything different with an adult. It's just that adults' behaviors 
do tend to be bigger and sometimes scarier or more irritating to people. And so that's something to kind of pay attention to. But I would essentially go about it the same way when it happens. Or, you know, if your dog's trying to get away, like that's a legitimate thing that your dog is afraid of, you can also just facilitate escape. And that makes you a trusted person that the dog can lean on. I would avoid little kids kind of quote unquote in the wild for for probably a long time with this dog. I would only be around little kids in controlled settings. It sounds like you've had some controlled settings to work on this fear. I would not be around them in the wild because in the wild, they might do things like kick a chain link fence, which is not something that your dog should experience because of your dog's specific issues. So I'm sorry that both things happen, but but the meltdown over the chain link fence kicking sounds normal. And I would respond um, in much the same way that I outlined in that podcast. Okay, we've got another question from Lynn. Lynn writes, our puppy is also very keen on peeing on blankets, beds, mattresses, etc. when given the opportunity. She is more or less house trained otherwise, but this seems to be something different. She'll usually do it if she is a little bit upset or frustrated, even if she has just been outside to pee. If she has a normal potty accident, inside is usually on the floor. She does not mind laying down on the pee-stained blanket seconds later. Will she grow out of it or what can we do? We keep her out of our furniture, but she is small and needs a warm blanket to sleep on. Lynn, this one needs a full vet workup. Um, I would treat this like a medical problem until proven otherwise. And then it probably also needs somebody to do a deep dive for you. This paired with your other question of the puppy being very, very upset over noises makes me think that there's something a little bit deeper going on. And I think that you probably want to get hooked up with a professional to just have a look at everything. All right. And last one for this week comes from Allison. I adopted a dog around three months ago. Embark results mostly Australian cattle dog and husky, a little Alaskan Malamute and boxer. And she's currently around one year, six months. Adolescence, yay. She's the first dog that's mine and not a family dog. I would love to get her into agility or nose work in the future. She's very food motivated and toy motivated too. And even though I'm new to this, I believe she has high drive and loves to train and play and be reinforced. My main question is, how the heck do I come up with training plans? How do I layer foundational skills to set her up for success? Most comprehensive plans are for puppies and common advice for rescues is... The 333 rule, which we are past, and I'm not even sure what that is, Allison. It feels like there's so much to work on. Loose leash walking, desensitization, crate training, cooperative care, paired with a few behavior issues, anxiety around new places, people, and light reactivity. I've listened to your podcast, read books, and watched webinars, yet for some reason I still don't know where to start and I feel stuck. Any advice on how to come up with a training plan? Where do I start? So, Allison, you don't need to feel bad because what you're asking for is like, how do I get a dog trainer education? to train my own dog. And when people in the field often lack a good education. So this isn't your fault. Couple of things, I would recommend that you join my membership. My membership has a lot of courses for you, has a dynamic community, and we will absolutely get you through this adolescence. We'll get you through crate training and cooperative care, and we'll really get you through the reactivity that you might be facing and the, some of the anxiety. For the agility piece, I recommend Megan Foster's membership, which is FX Agility. So Megan for agility, my membership for the other stuff. If you can't join both, I would start in mine and you can kind of graduate over to Megan's when you feel like you've got a handle on the behavior stuff. 
And that's my highest recommendation. And that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe wherever you heard this podcast. And don't forget to join Patreon at patreon.com slash cogdogradio. And if you're interested in more content like the stuff you heard here, I hope you'll check out my online courses, my membership, and all of my offerings at my website, sarahstremming.com. See you there.